have had the privilege of having some really good mentors in my life, men who took an interest in me and, and trained me and equipped me for ministry. And one of them gave me a, a quote that I want to share with you this morning. He told me, people will listen to you better if they know that you love them. The man that told me that, some of you may know, it was uh, Dr. Bob Luther. Dr. Bob was a pastor here. He, he pastored a church in San Diego for many years. And, and he's one of the men that, that I watched the way he interacted with people. And I, I learned a lot from him. And one day, uh, he and I were, were sitting in his office. And I was asking him questions about what he had learned from his time in ministry. And it was kind of this just special time where he and I talking. A lot of times, you know, what we do as pastors is, is public. It's up in front of people. And this was just kind of a special moment for him and I to, to talk. And and at one point, he kind of paused, and he leaned forward, and he said, Jeff, I don't want you to miss this. This is really important. He said, make sure that you spend time with people, and make sure that they know you care about them. He said, you know, I could have been a better preacher if I would have spent more time at it, but I really just felt like God was calling me to be with people. And you know what? People will just listen to you better if they know that you love them. When Dr. Luther passed away, I was, uh, had the privilege and the honor of speaking at his memorial service. And I knew exactly what I was going to say. I was going to share about this, this sacred moment that he and I had. And I was going to share with the people how much that impacted me and how much it, it meant to me and how much it actually shaped the way I have done ministry since that day. I was the fourth or the fifth person to share that moment and everyone that went before me shared the exact same quote. <laughs> I thought that was my special moment. But apparently, Dr. Luther shared that line with every human being he ever came into contact with. Now, the reason why he shared it was because he believed it. And the reason why he believed it is because it's true. People will listen to you better if they know you love them. And today, as we look at our text, we're gonna see this principle play itself out in a variety of ways. In the same way that I learned and watched Dr. Luther, we are gonna be introduced to a group of men who were discipled by people that cared about them, and it shaped the way they lived their lives. Each of these men have a unique encounter with Jesus, and each one of them has something to show us about what it means to be a disciple. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but early on in, in, my, in my faith, I used to think that the term disciple was reserved for this elite group of 12 people. But there's way more to that term than just what was reserved for those 12 men. What is a disciple? A disciple is a student who learns the doctrines and the lifestyle of the one they follow. In the simplest of terms, a disciple is a follower. It's a student who learns from someone that's wiser or more mature than they are. The Greek word for disciple is mathetis. You catch a, a root word in there. It's the root word for our word, mathematics. So regardless of how you feel about algebra or geometry, the point here is that a disciple is a learner. 
It's someone that needs to sit underneath the instruction of another in order to grasp important concepts. But discipleship is more than just the importing or the transferring of information. Think back to your math class. Think back to your history class or maybe even the last um, community group or Sunday school class that you were in. Who were the teachers that really taught you? Who were the teachers that you learned best from? My guess would be it was those teachers that you connected with on a relational level. The best teachers are able to take concepts and bring them to life with their ability to communicate on a relational level. I have heard it said that there are some principles that are just simply caught and not taught. And Jesus wasn't the only person that had disciples. The first example of a disciple maker that we encounter in our passage is actually John the Baptist. Verse 35 says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. One was Andrew, who's named, and one is an unnamed disciple, very likely the author of the gospel. It was very likely John, the gospel writer. Now, remember, at this time, John the Baptist was kind of the man. He was kind of a rock star. It had been 400 years since the last time the nation of Israel had a prophet speaking to them on behalf of God. They had gotten really used to that system for a long, long time. God would anoint a prophet. He would say, thus saith the Lord. The prophet would thus saith, and the people would be blessed. But then for 400 years, God hit the pause button. He didn't stop working. He continued to work, but he just chose to be silent. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist burst onto the scene like a voice crying out in the wilderness. He spoke with prophetic authority and the people flocked to him. John the Baptist had his own disciples, his own students that hung on every word and listened to what John had to say. And look at what he had to say in verse 35. Six, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this was a repeat from the day before. John the Baptist had said that once before. And remember, anytime you see repetition in scripture, that is an alert to pay attention. This is a repeat from the day before. John uses a word behold that's way stronger than maybe what some of your Bibles might say. The, the, the word look is a softer word. I prefer the word behold because behold is a command. It's not a suggestion. It was something that, that his students couldn't miss. If any of those disciples were dozing off, when he said behold, they all woke up. For all you teachers, I know you've got a strategy when you see someone dozing off. Maybe you drop a book or you slam your hand on the desk to wake them up. This was John the Baptist's technique. Behold, he was saying, hey students, this subject matter is going to be on the test. You've got to know who that guy is. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now to you and I, it's a strange thing to say. We know that Jesus wasn't a little sheepy walking down the street. Okay, we know he doesn't have fluffy wool. 
But to any good Jew that was steeped in the Jewish tradition and understood the sacrificial system, when John the Baptist said that, they knew exactly what he was saying. That is the Father's perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice that is going to die and his blood is going to be shed for the remission, for the forgiveness of the sin of the world. They understood exactly what he was saying. They heard their teacher's message clearly and they understood their assignment. And how do we know they understood the assignment? Look at how they reacted. Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Don't miss the significance of this. Andrew and John left their teacher in a moment after one phrase being uttered. Do you know how much relational trust has to be built up in order for these two men to hear their teacher make one statement and they go, okay, apparently we're supposed to follow some guy we've never met before. And they take off and they begin to follow Jesus. They didn't abandon John the Baptist. They didn't desert him in that moment. They trusted him. They believed him. In fact, they knew that John loved them. So they listened to what he said. Because a good teacher will always point people to Jesus. Because when you know, you show. John's humility should be an example to all of us. He was more concerned about promoting Christ than he was about promoting himself. His goal wasn't to acquire and, and to amass the, the largest number of disciples so that he could build the biggest entourage in town. That wasn't his heart. He wanted people to follow Jesus. John knew exactly who Jesus was. So he points his disciple to Jesus and because of the high trust they had in their teacher, they immediately respond. Now, what happens next reads kind of comically to me. These two men begin to follow Jesus. Verse 37 starts with the words, turning around, Jesus says to them, what do you want? Why are you seeking me? Don't you kind of get a little bit of a stalker vibe from that? I mean, have you ever had that feeling where you're like, I feel like someone's following me. And you kind of turn around and they break their, you know, eye contact and act like they're doing something. I mean, these two guys are like lurking behind Jesus, like maybe not knowing exactly what they're supposed to do. How close should we get to him? And Jesus recognizes that. And he's kind of like, uh, hey, fellas, I know you're back there. Can we just kind of stop with the charade? I know you're there. What do you want? Well, what are you seeking? This is a masterful question from the master teacher. Why are you following me, guys? What are you up to? What is it that you seek? This was not a question to test their knowledge. It was a question to test their motives. Discipleship is a serious matter, and Jesus wants serious followers. A few weeks ago, I preached on another passage from John where Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. Remember that? Dynamic, powerful, you're recalling it right now, huh? 
Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And in that passage, Jesus does the same thing. He questions the motives of those who were following him. And in that instance, they were following with impure motives. They just wanted their stomachs filled. See, Jesus cares about the motives of those who claim to follow him. He asks him, what are you following for? Are you following me just to see if I'll do another miracle? Are you just a groupie that wants to be seen with the new popular guy in town? Are you following me just out of obligation to your teacher who told you that that's what you ought to be doing? Or are you following me because you want to learn from me? Now, their answer reveals the deep sincerity of their hearts. It may seem like a strange response, but it really serves to illustrate another essential element of being a true disciple. You see, these two guys answered Jesus' question with a question of their own. It almost appears awkward. Jesus knows they're back there. He's like, hey, fellas, what are you following me for? And they come back with, oh, where are you staying? It doesn't really make any sense. It's kind of like, I don't know what to say. We just got caught. Say something. But man, it reveals something way more than that. It was a very intentional response. You know what these two guys were doing? They were being extremely brazen. They invited themselves over to Jesus's house. Right? Don't we train our kids? Don't, don't do that. Don't invite yourself over for a sleepover. It's rude. These guys were like, hey, you know what, Jesus? We're not content to just lag back and watch you from afar. We want deeper communication with you. We want a deeper relationship with you. Where are you staying? We want to move closer to you. We are not content to, to lag behind. Because a disciple desires meaningful fellowship. How many times in your Christian life have you heard a pastor or a Sunday school teacher tell you, read your Bible, pray every day? How many times? Here we go. Right. We know this song. How many times have you heard someone say, you should have a quiet time. You should read your Bible. You should pray. Let me dispel any myths or misconceptions that exist. There are no pastor points in heaven. There are, there's no commission that we work on. We do not get a set of steak knives or luggage when we get to heaven if we said that a hundred times during our ministry, okay? Why do we say that? We, we say that because we want you to spend time with Jesus because we become like what we seek, and when you spend time in the presence of your Savior, you begin to look, sound, and act more like him. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers. And in it, he makes the case that folks who were considered experts in their field spent 10,000 hours practicing he looked at a whole bunch of different disciplines, whether it was business or um, athletics or the arts, and he would look at the outliers. He would look at the people that were exceptional in their field, and he asserts that they got there, yes, partially because of natural talent, but also there were some similarities. They spent 10,000 hours practicing their craft in order to hone it so that they could excel. So if you want to be a great violinist, Spend time focused on practicing the violin. 
If you want to be a great free throw shooter, develop muscle memory by shooting 10,000 hours worth of free throws. And if you want to be a disciple, spend time learning from and about Jesus. And then you will begin to look like him. You will begin to treat people the way he treated people. And you will begin to relate to your heavenly father in the same way Jesus related to his. That's why pastors tell you to spend time with Jesus every day because you become like what you seek. So I ask you the same question that Jesus asked those early followers. What are you seeking? What is your deepest longing? What do you want out of life? If you take time to evaluate where you spend your time and your treasures, you might discover what you are truly seeking after. And I hope you like what you find out because your behavior will begin to reflect the things you are pursuing. Jesus wanted to know the motives of these two early followers. So he asked them a probing question. It was a heart question, not a head question. And then when he got their answer, where are you staying? We want more. We want closer fellowship with you. Jesus responds with this line we see in verse 39. He says, come and see. Come check it out for yourselves. If you want to know what it looks like to be my disciple, just come with me. And everything changes in that moment because this is a call to action. Talk is cheap. They could have stood on the side of the road all day and talked about Jesus. But now his disciples had a decision to make. First, they get caught stalking Jesus. Then they have their motives question. And now they were invited. Come and see what deeper fellowship with Jesus really looks like. And a disciple responds to the invitation. There's a big difference between being a casual observer and an active participant. A true follower must respond to the invitation when called. There comes a point at which every person must respond to the call to follow Jesus because a true disciple responds to the invitation. This is an act of the will. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is that make or break moment. Will you follow or is your interest merely superficial? Is your interest merely an obligation to what someone else told you you ought to do? Are you just a casual observer content to lag behind and watch from afar? Or will you come and see what the Lord has to offer? This is an invitation for all people in all places at all times. And I find this question interesting. I think it's so interesting that Jesus uses that, frame, that phrase, what do you seek? Because Jesus tells us very clearly what his mission was. He tells us very clearly why he came to earth. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. You see, Jesus was a seeker himself. And he came to seek disciples that would follow him. Jesus came with a heart that was inclined to invite people to come and see what he had to offer. And that was eternal life through faith in him. 
Jesus didn't quiz John and Andrew to test their knowledge. He didn't do a background check on them to make sure that they were qualified to be one of his disciples. And he didn't give them a sales pitch to persuade them that he was worth following. He simply invited these men into deeper relationship to come and to see for themselves what it was like to be his disciple. And it changed them because the invitation leads to transformation. Andrew and John said yes to the invitation to spend time with Jesus. Verse 39 tells us, it says, um, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw, they responded. They came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine what that would be like? I thought it was cool to have a, a private audience with Dr. Luther, someone that I looked up to and esteemed highly. These two guys got Jesus to themselves. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I wonder if, if Jesus did the same thing for them that he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. When, when the text tells us that, that Jesus opened up the scriptures and he explained to them all the things that it had said about him. I wonder if they peppered Jesus with questions and kind of compared it to what John the Baptist had said. Whatever the case is, that was an amazing experience. The word that John uses here for stay, where are you staying? They stayed with them. It's the same word he's going to use in John chapter 15 when he says that Jesus said, abide in me. To stay with Jesus, to abide with him means to stay close, to remain in, to draw your life source from. Because discipleship is so much more than just learning about Jesus. Discipleship is not just about information, it's about transformation. Because Christianity is not simply a set of doctrines to understand. Christianity is about a person to be followed. And we become different people when we dwell with Jesus. When we abide, when we dwell with Jesus, we begin to align our hearts with his. And his values become our values. When we respond to the invitation to follow Jesus, we submit ourselves to the shaping of the master teacher. And he changes our heart to reflect his heart for the world. And look at the effect that it had on Andrew. The text tells us that after spending time abiding in or dwelling in the presence of Jesus, it says that Andrew runs out to find his brother Simon Peter. Verse 41, the first thing, the very next thing that Andrew does was to find Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. A disciple seeks out new disciples. I think the highest honor that you and I have as disciples of Christ is to bring another person to Jesus. I think the reason why I'm in full-time ministry, I think the reason why for 29 years I've been in full-time ministry is because what happened to me after I led my first person to Christ, I was hooked. And you know where I led my first person to Christ? In a fraternity. <laughs> yeah, it can happen. Not exactly a hotbed of spiritual activity. 
But my freshman year, I started a Bible study and this kid named Eric gave his life to Christ and I was hooked. You want to know why? Because I had a front row seat to watch the supernatural happen right in front of me. My friends, disciples make other disciples. When Andrew ran to his brother and said, we have found the Messiah, you know what word he used? It's a word you're going to recognize. He said, Eureka. I have found it. You know that story that we've all heard? about Archimedes who discovered how to determine the, the, um, the volume of the king's crown. And he says, Eureka, I've discovered it. You know what else, when the, when the, um, during the gold rush in California, what did the people say when they found gold? Eureka, we have found it. It's still the state motto of California. Eureka is what you proclaim when you are overwhelmed with joy and excitement over what you have discovered. And Andrew discovered the Messiah. And what was the first thing he did? He had to go find someone that he loved, someone that he cared about, and bring him to Jesus. Because those who care will share. That's why we have these high five cards. Some of you may have had these in your, in your wallet or, or on your mirror somewhere. The reason why we have these high five cards is because we want you to do what Andrew did. We want you to think of people that you care about, that need to know about the Messiah. We want you to jot down their names and to pray for them regularly and look for opportunities to serve them and to show them that you care about them because there may be somebody in your life that needs to hear about the Messiah. And if that freaks you out, if it makes you scared or nervous to tell someone, let me remind you, if that person knows you love them, they'll listen to you better. A disciple seeks out new disciples. Those who care will share because disciples reproduce themselves. They share the good news because they have met the Messiah. They have encountered the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and they care enough to share what they have learned with those who have not yet heard. Jesus meets five people in our passage. We've been introduced to three. Each one of them comes to Jesus in a different way. There's only one way to heaven, but my friends, there are many ways to Jesus. Andrew and John were kind of encouraged by their teacher to follow Jesus. Simon Peter is brought to Jesus by his brother. Verse 43 introduces us to another man, uh, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, follow me. Philip was intentionally invited personally to be part of team Jesus by Jesus himself. And our last disciple, his name is Nathaniel. And we're introduced to him in verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Clearly, Philip had a good grasp of the Old Testament. And maybe that was the reason why Jesus sought him out. He knows the prophecies regarding Jesus. He was fortunate enough to be personally invited to the party by Jesus himself. And like Andrew, what does he do? He did what good disciples do. He sought out someone else to bring to Jesus. And this is what I really like about Nathaniel. Nathaniel calls it like he sees it. He's got no false pretense. He makes no attempt to act super spiritual. 
He just says exactly what he believes. Hey, we just met Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, Nazareth, that dumpy old town? That crummy town? Are you sure? There's no shot that Jesus came from there. Now, I don't think, I don't think Nathaniel was being like intentionally disrespectful. I just think he was being real. Nathaniel had questions. He was curious. He wasn't quite sure about what he had heard from his friend. So he asked a question of his own. And you know what? Jesus was okay with his skepticism. Jesus was okay with his cynicism. He was okay with having Nathaniel say, I'm not so sure. You know what I love? I've shared the gospel with, with a ton of people in my life. Some of them respond on the spot. And you know what some of them say to me? That's really interesting, but I'm not ready yet. I love that answer. I would much prefer that than, sure, let's get this over with. What's that magic prayer I have to say? Tell me the little magic words that gets me to go to heaven and let's just get over with this. I love it when people say, I'm, I'm curious. I'm not quite sure. Let's spend some time investigating. That's what Nathaniel does. And Jesus is not intimidated. He's not put out by Nathaniel saying, um, I'm not really sure. Jesus doesn't get all pouty and say, fine, and you can't come to my birthday party. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. He's very comfortable with Nathaniel being real and authentic because a disciple lives authentically. Yes, Nathaniel does start out as a little bit of a cynic. He may have been skeptical. He challenged the words that Philip told him. But then he set out to investigate for himself. And then Jesus blows his mind. He encounters Jesus and it changes Nathaniel. Rather than rebuking Nathaniel for his lack of faith, Jesus affirms him. Verse 37, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or in whom there is no guile. That's the real deal. Jesus pays Nathanael a really nice compliment here. He comments on his character and affirms Nathanael for being an honest and straightforward person. And rather than just simply saying, thank you, Jesus, Nathanael speaks his mind once again. Verse 48, how do you know? <laughs> why, why are you telling me things about my character? You don't know me. How do you know who I am? More questions, more curiosity from Nathaniel. He doesn't just take it at face value because Nathaniel's not afraid to be honest with Jesus. He didn't feel like he needed to be fake with him. He didn't feel like he needed to impress Jesus. He was just honest. He was real. And Jesus affirms him for being a man without guile. You've been with that person that you just can't tell if they're being real with you. You've been with them. You can sniff out a fake or a fraud or a poser a mile away. They feel icky. You can't really tell if they mean what they say. We can sniff out a faker a mile away and so can Jesus. My friends, there's no need to try to impress him because Jesus would much prefer the real deal. He would much prefer authenticity from his followers because he already knows everything about you, just like with Nathaniel. 
He knows everything about you, every flaw, every failure, every mistake, and every victory. He sees you. And just like with Nathaniel, he has supernatural knowledge about us, and he loves us, even when we're cynical and stubborn. Because to be seen is to be known, and to be known is to be loved. It is futile to try to trick God into thinking we're perfect. Now, we try to do it with each other all the time. We wear masks all the time to kind of pretend that we're okay. We put up a mask sometimes to compensate for our weakness, to give the impression that we're really strong. We will oftentimes put up a mask to cover our weakness or our insecurity and sometimes it works that painted on smile sometimes works and we can trick each other but what God really wants is for you to be authentic he wants us to be people that are without guile he wants us to live without those masks that we try to wear because masks conceal what God wants to reveal When we live authentically, we free ourselves from that burden of self-doubt or or self-loathing or even self-righteousness. When Jesus looks at you, what do you think he sees? Do you think he sees somebody that he's mad at for what you did a year ago? Do you think he looks at you and he sees somebody that he's really disappointed in? Do you know what he sees? The real you. He sees someone that he created in his image and he loves you. Oh, you can try to hold up a mask, but it's not worth it because he sees right through it. So just lay it down. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knew Nathaniel when he was sitting under that fig tree before they even met. When Jesus came to earth, he came in the likeness of a man. He came in human flesh and he did that on purpose. He put on flesh and dwelt among us so that we could relate to him. A carpenter's son, a person who experienced injustice, a person that felt emotions and felt them strongly, a person who has been tempted in every way that you and I are, but yet was without sin. Jesus came as a man so that we might have a relationship with him. Because the essence of discipleship is relationship. Jesus gave his disciples an invitation to come and see what life with him was like. He gave an invitation to follow him. And those are relational offers. Not a test to take. Not a morality questionnaire to prove our worth. He simply said, come with me. Just the way you are, come with me. And along the way, you will begin to adopt my values. You will begin to reflect my heart and you will carry on my legacy long after my go- I'm gone because you're my disciples. And that's what disciples do. What is a disciple? It's someone who responds to the invitation to come and see. And my friends, that's an invitation that you want to RSVP to because it'll change your life.